Welcome to Episode 5 of the Coot Street Roundtable. The Roundtable is a monthly podcast where panelists James Bradley, Ian Bond, and me, Jonathan Strahan, discuss a newly released science fiction or fantasy novel. This month we're discussing Guy Gabriel Kay's latest novel, Children of Earth and Sky. First of all, though, hello and welcome back to James. Thank you, Jonathan. Nice to be back. And to Ian, hello, good to talk to you again. It's wonderful always to talk to you, Jonathan. And it's actually quite nice to talk to James, too. That's right. Thanks, Ian. It's nice to talk to you as well. (laughs) You don't feel condescended to at all? Second choice? Nothing like that? (laughs) So we all survived the the, the Paul McCauley book. I mean, Gary's off doing ick for this month or something. But um, I have to say, before we get into this a little bit, we're five books in, and I'm pretty happy with the four books we've read. What do you guys feel? Yeah, yeah, very much so. I think we've, we've chosen well. I've only done three, but yes, I, I've enjoyed them. I will say for me, uh, at the moment, the Patricia McKillop is receding in memory the most. I feel like it's the, 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 the lightest of the books we've, we've discussed so far. Um, uh, yeah, to an extent. Um, I, I really did like the McKillop. Uh, it, it still makes me hungry just thinking about it. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, it's, I, I'd want to evaluate at the end of the year. Okay. And of course, we're here to discuss Children of Earth and Sky. It's Guy Guy's thirteenth Guy Gabriel Kay's thirteenth novel. And have um, you read all thirteen, uh, uh, John Jonathan? I, look, honesty compels me to say that I have not. Um, I'm yet. To, I haven't read uh, Isabel. Okay. But I have read all of the others. Yeah. No, oh, okay, that's a pretty, that's pretty decent. <laughs> <laughs> and how about you, James? Are you reasonably well, or reasonably familiar with Guy's work? Uh, look, I've not read, um, I'm embarrassed to say I've not read Theonovar books. Uh, I have read one of the other Serantium books, um, and I want to ask you both a question about that in a moment, and I've read Tagana and um, Under Heaven and River of Stars. Yeah. So, yeah, look, I've read a number of them. I haven't read all of them. I've just read Tagana. That's all I've read, and that was a long time ago, and I remember it was in New York City when I read it. So, uh, yes. But that's the only one I've read. Well, I guess to give listeners a little bit of context, as we do that early in the discussion, about the book about Guy. Uh, Guy's from Canada. He's a, a recipient of the Order of Canada about two years ago, I think. Started off with probably the single most auspicious entry to fantasy that you could imagine, having been invited by Christopher Tolkien to go to Oxford and spend close to a year working, helping editing J.R.R. Tolkien's manuscript for the uh, Silmarillion into its final published form. So I had no idea about that. That's yep. really interesting. Okay. Well, actually, chronologically, it's fascinating because he goes to um, to Oxford, and then the next thing he does, well, he goes to Oxford, spends a year there. Uh, comes back to Canada, uh, where he takes he does a law degree. It's called to the bar in 1981, and I restrain from joking. And every year after that, um, he then actually goes on to become a radio writer and producer and director for the Canadian Broadcasting Company. And then in 1984, publishes the Summer Tree, which is the first volume of the Fionnvar Tapestry, which I encountered when it first came out. Stumbled across it in a shop here in. Perth and fell for it immediately. And, you know, the Fiona Vart Tapestry probably is his most straightforward work of secondary world fantasy in many ways, unlike the later books. It's Tagana that really sets the the framework for everything that comes after, although it's not related. Fionnvar is, is portal, though, isn't it? It's, it's, it's people from our world going to a secondary world. Is that correct? Or is it? Not as I remember it, no. Oh, okay. Okay, oh, all right, fine, cool. It, yeah, move it, along. <laughs> it's set in a in an analogue of Renaissance Italy. Oh, okay, gotcha. But it's plainly not our world or a straight analogue of our world. It has two moons, a few other changes. It's A Song for Our Bond, which is was a book that followed, is set in medieval Provence. And it is directly related. In fact, there's a set of six novels now. Uh, of which Children of Earth and Sky is the latest, that are all in the same history. So you've got Song for Arbon. Yep. Then the, the Lions of Al Rasan, which I was very lucky to read in ma- manuscript back in 1995. Then the Sarantine Mosaic, Sailing to Sarantium and Lord of Emperors, which is set in uh, the Byzantium of Justinian I, or at least its analogue. 
then Last Light of the Sun, which is uh, at the time of the Viking invasions during the, the reign of Alfred the Great. Yep. Big change, and they say, the book that I've not read, and I don't know why I haven't, because this is actually his major award winner. Isabel, uh, which is a modern urban fantasy, which is set in Provence, uh, won the World Fantasy Award in 2008. Then uh, followed by the pair Under Heaven and River of Stars, which until recently were his most recent books, which were set during the Tang and Song dynasties in China, Oregon, their analogues. And then we come to Children of Earth and Sky, which we'll talk about shortly. So, I mean... It's quite a considerable body of work, but as you can also see, not the most prolific of writers. Yeah, so because you're saying the first one was in the eighties, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, yes, the Fun of Our Topistry came out in nineteen eighty four, and here we are in two thousand and sixteen with his thirteenth book. So it takes what two, three years for, for each novel. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. All right. Well. Yeah. <laughs> so this this particular one is based on because I didn't know, uh, but it's clearly based on two previous works, or it's part of a shared world with the Serantium stuff. I think, and James, you can comment on this as well. I mean, but I think that's probably stretching it and a little unfair. I think what happens is Guy has a real fascination with the evolution of modern civilization, particularly in Europe. And yep. that has drawn him back and back to various analog periods of history, so he can dis he can discuss and analyze them. So it is true that Arbon, Alrasan, the Sarantine books, Last Light, and now Children of Earth and Sky are, if you like, in the same history, but it is so loosely connected as to be like reading different uh, history books. Uh, set that happened to cover Europe. I mean, there are echoes. I mean, for example, as you'd know, having read, read the new book, it's set, uh, 25 years after the fall of Serantium, which is the Byzantium analog, but is actually set yep. a thousand years after the Serantine mosaic. Ah, okay. All right. So, yes, yeah, so we're not talking a generation here. We're talking millennia. We're talking a long, long time. Yeah. I mean, what echoed for me, and this is not yet a spoiler, that we'll do a little spoiler warning in a moment. Uh, what echoed for me is there's a point in the story where they refer to a mosaic of uh, two empresses of uh, Serentium. And yep. early in sailing to Serentium, there's references to those mosaics being created. Ah, uh, okay. But that's kind of the level of link that we've got. So it really does. So essentially, like is the, is it's essentially the first one, the beginning of the uh, Ottoman Empire, whatever analog, and the second one is the end of that empire. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. So it's 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 it, so so that's pretty much what it is. So, um, and it's something that I'm I'm, I'm happy. You know, I think it's been fascinating to, to see the way he's gone around analysing it. What have your had? been your feelings leading up to it, James? Oh, look, I, I've i been a bit unclear as to how it fitted in with the others because I've read Sailing to Serantium and I've read The Lion's Valrasan, um, but quite a long time ago. Mm. And all of my books are in storage. <laughs> so <laughs> I couldn't actually go and look at them and find out. And oddly enough, it was that scene with the mosaics that made me realise, because I've been... I've been doing that thing where I was wondering whether they were, whether this was in a sense in the same world or whether it was that thing that someone like Stan Robinson does where the worlds are kind of parallel but not necessarily the same the same world. And it was, in fact, the, the building of that, of uh, the mosaic and the mention of the mosaic in Children of Earth and Sky that made me realise it was actually the same world. So I've been a little bit, a little bit uncertain about that until I got there. And as I say, I, I couldn't actually check on my shelf to find out. <laughs> Well, actually, let me ask you both this, because it's something that was on my mind yesterday when I was reading Children of Earth and Sky, and it doesn't yet get to spoiler territory, so we're fine. Um, Children of Earth and Sky, yes, it's set during, well, during an analogue of the conflicts and dramas of Renaissance Europe, uh, around an analogue of Venice, an analogue of Dubrovnik, uh, an analogue of Byzantium, wherever else. How important did you feel it was reading this book to have some kind of grasp of those real-world analogues, or did you Zero. It essentially irrelevant? It was irrelevant. I mean, I, I'm certain that to get depth and texture, 
it's nice to know, but in terms of sheer storytelling, character development, etc., 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 zero. In other words, not you might all disagree. In other words, I never felt this sort of naggy feeling of you know, do I do I know enough to understand this book or to appreciate the political schemes that are going on? I never felt I was missing out. If that makes any sense, it all. It's all clearly laid out, and yes, you know, again, it's in a, for me the Venice to Brobnik, whatever. It's more an Easter egg if you happen to know that history, rather than essential to understanding the book. James, yeah, look, I would have said the same. I don't think you need to have read them to, uh, you know, not not having read them would diminish your enjoyment of them in any way. I should point out that Dubrovnik is so hot right now. I mean, I was watching Game of Thrones the other night. In fact, I'm thinking Dubrovnik's doing a lot of work in the fantasy world at the moment. But, um, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, y you want to get the physical appearance of this book, you could go and watch Game of Thrones. Um, but um, what, I, what I did think, I must say, reading it was, in fact, it's not just that your enjoyment is not necessarily diminished by not having read the book or not knowing the history in detail. It's that... Because the book doesn't really attempt to capture the mind of a kind of 16th century world, you know, it's not attempting to kind of create characters who inhabit that world in a, in a kind of historical sense. Yeah, that's right, yep. You don't even need it in that sense, I don't think, because it's, you know, in many ways these are essentially, and this is always one of those issues around historical fantasy, historical fiction, which is, to what extent do you attempt to replicate what were presumably the reasonably alien mm. psychologies and suppositions of another time? And, you know, he does a bit of it, but he doesn't really, you know, there's no attempt to kind of really enter that world at a kind of psychological level. Does it, am I making sense? I mean, in, yes. in trying to kind of recreate the mindset of someone from the 16th century, which which in a way is quite a good thing because I think that might actually have been... It would have gotten in the way of the book, I think. I would tend to agree. I mean, I think it's a very, very modern book. So you're right about not attempting mm. to echo the mindset of the period. I think also, I mean... Okay, when I was reading the book, I, I do find myself trying to sketch out in my mind where everything is... Physically, because the politics, the the the, ge the geography of this Europe that he has he has created, is important. You do kind of need to know that you're going from you know, Ceresa, you know, this sort of uh, lagoon-based coastal city, to another coastal city across the sea, down to wherever else is. So you sort of want to know those kind of things. And because if you're familiar with Guy's work, you know that it is a historical analog. There's a temptation to basically fire up a, a a map of Europe and just go, oh, well, that's what it is, because that gives you the shorthand. But I agree that it's not necessary, and in some ways maybe almost, but not quite, detracts from it. Mm. It's a sideshow that's going on that you don't really need to pay attention to. And I don't think it's his intention you should pay attention to it. You know, I think it's his intention that you should be focusing on the story that he's telling the characters that he's evolving, the points that he, that he's making in, you know, in in the course of the book. Well, and it's yeah, I mean, but, oh, sorry, sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say one of the things I think is fascinating about case fiction is that unlike a lot of other fancy writers, he's very interested in you know he builds these very complex worlds, but they're essentially about individual psychology, and unlike a lot of fantasy. There's actually almost no landscape in his novels, which is interesting, particularly given that this is a landscape that lots of us would recognise if we were given it. But you know, I would say the same about Under Heaven and River of Stars, although to be fair, Under Heaven does begin in that kind of ruined battlefield, which is a very clear kind of physical location. But, you know, there are maps. The maps have almost nothing on them if you look at them. They're almost devoid of feature. You know, and in an odd kind of way, because the books are so focused on, I, I guess not just the psychology, but the kind of experiential kind of, uh, I guess, kind of essential experience of those characters. It, they're not very interested in the kind of physical landscape they inhabit. I mean, sometimes in the bits and pieces, the the objects, but not really in the forests or the rivers or the ocean. Yeah, you know, they're, 
they're just kind of something you move through in in the story, which is interesting because it's actually not like a lot of other fantasy in that sense. And interesting, given that he began as someone working with Tolkien, which is all about the landscape. Mm. Yeah, you know? yeah, you're right. I don't believe there's a sense that this is a travelogue. Uh, no, because this is this is the focus here is on 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 character and on these little fulcrums in history of this particular mm-hmm. world, and not a travelogue of here's another nice spot. Or, or bad spot, as it may be. I mean, it doesn't mean that that, that, that Kay doesn't spend time, uh, you know, d- developing these places. They're not. They're not. It's not all just dialogue and character moments. But, but yeah, absolutely. It's not a. It's you're hundred percent right. It's, it's it is about the psychology more. That, mm. That's that comes out really clearly. Yeah, I think so. Well, actually, it occurs to me this is probably a good point in time to sort of say, probably after about here, there are going to be spoilers for Children of Earth and Sky. And if you yes. haven't read the book, go away, come back now. I would say, and maybe we'll do a quick, I love this book. It's worth going away and reading and coming back. I'd say the same. It's fabulous. Go and read it. Ian? Uh, yeah, but I would say, yep, I, I cried twice. So there you go. <laughs> Only twice, you, you tough man. Okay. Yeah, I know, I know. It was towards the end, but yes, uh, there were two points in particular. Anyway, yes. Okay. To set, to set us up, the, um, the description for the book is goes, goes something like this. From the small town of Senjan, notorious for its pirates, a young woman sets out to find vengeance for her lost family. That same spring from the wealthy city-state of Ceresa, famous for its canals and lagoon, come two very different people, a young artist traveling to the dangerous east to paint the Grand Caliph at his request and possibly to do more, and a fiercely intelligent, angry woman posing as a doctor's wife but sent by Ceresa as a spy. The trading ship that carries them is commanded by the accomplished younger son of a merchant family, ambivalent about the life he's been born to live, and further east, a boy trains to become a soldier in the elite infantry of the Caliph, to win glory in the war everyone knows is coming. As these lives entwine, their fates, and those of many others, will hang in the balance when the Caliph sends his massive army to take the greatest fortress that is the gateway to the Western world. That's kind of it. That, that's, that's, this is a book of civilization under threat. This is a, what I... I felt, and this is maybe something I have to elaborate. This is a romance of civilization. This is, this is someone who is in, in, a writer who is in love with art and culture and poetry and whatever else. And with modern philosophy and mod, the, the, the modern frame of mind. And who is looking at how it evolves through a series of characters. And I think it makes for a really fascinating, engaging tale. I loved it. Yes, yeah, I, mean, I, I uh, <laughs> sorry, go ahead, James. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I think I find fascinating about his novels is that they are odd novels where kind of nothing happens and everything happens. I mean, they're that kind of funny thing where they're about lives in the midst of great change, but the people are not necessarily the people. You know, you're not reading about the kings and the generals and the and the people. You're reading about kind of traders, pirates. They're kind of bit players in history who are kind of absorbed in the events, and that that makes it kind of wonderful because there's this wonderful and there's a wonderful kind of sense of freedom and play always in his novels. You know, and in this one particularly, I thought. Yeah, but I don't know. Are they bit players though? Because in this particular novel, the so they start off as bit players. But in, but in a couple of examples, they literally become in the, the part of the mythology of, of the history. Yeah, you know, because because the right. book has been told to us in a sense by a historian. Uh, it's one of the little little tricks that that Kay uses that this book is being related to us by, by someone obviously of the who who knows the what what, what transpires. Uh, and I don't know if this is something he's done before. Uh, if that's if that's a normal thing that he does, but. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if they, they definitely begin and, as big players. Fair, they become much larger than that. Sorry, I was going to say, to be fair, having run that, when you look at Under, uh, Under Heaven, sorry, River of Stars, you know, one of the main characters is a general. So my, my, my thesis is bunk. But, I mean, it is... <laughs> well, it's not well, completely but I mean, bunk. I mean, there is a sense where it's people talking to the emperor. It's not the emperor. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, no, true. But, it's the guy who but, but if you take a character like... If you take a character like Danica, you know, there's that, there's that line towards the end about how people started to name their daughters Danica. Yeah. You know, so 
So these are people that don't just get absorbed, they actually leave an imprint. I think that's actually one of the key parts of the novel, that this is about individuals leaving a major mark, bigger than a print or a bigger than their own profile. And that's that's what I found really captivating, compelling about it. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's right. Yeah, well, that, that's how, how you build a history. You build a history out of, you know, the, the lives of those that you've heard about. And so you have, you know, I mean, you've got a pair of Alani. I mean, I think we, we start with, well, the book opens with the ambassador to um, the Ottoman Empire, or so, uh, or whatever his name is, who we barely see in the entire book, because it's about setting up that sort of framework of politics and intrigue. And then it's back to sort of, there's a, there's a disgraced young young noble woman who's been given a chance to live a more adventurous life because she's intelligent and capable. And I think the role of women in the book is really interesting. The way Guy balances, you know, Lorna Valari, who's this young woman who's been pregnant, who's been, who's had a child taken away, who's been put into a, uh, a nunnery or some kind of equivalent of that, and then is offered, you know, by the, um, the Council of Twelve of Ceresa the chance to become a spy and to um, have some kind of broader role in the world. That plays against you know, the young merchant's son who's swaggering and romantic and handsome. And ha- I, mean, it, I mean, you're right, Ian. He's not some, these, these characters aren't necessarily uh, the, the, the nobodies of history, if you like. These are uh, people who are, have agency, if you like, or take agency. I mean, uh, Marin is, all, is always going to have agency. He is the, you know, young son of Merchant's family, has his own ship, all that sort of thing. Leon, Lenora has to be given the chance to take it, though she has the ability. Uh, Pera Valani, the artist, you would have to say, at least has the possibility of agency. Danica has a really interesting and wonderful character, uh, in that, you know, she's lost her family. She has, you know, the attributes, if you like, of a warrior in a culture that doesn't really want her to be that. I mean, a lot of it, a lot of the story is being who they, the, the world doesn't appear to want you to be. And then Guy has this really interesting yes. way of, of, of structuring these, these stories. So they flow on just past that point where you think they might end so that he can show you more resonance and more implication between that one character and another. Yeah, no, that, that's that's good. I, I will say though that um, okay, I'll be honest. Did anyone else find the first fifty or so pages a tad clunky? And is that a normal thing? With because I have a vague feeling, memory that Tagana it took me a good sixty or seventy pages before it clicked, and this also took a good fifty pages before it truly clicked. Not not so clunky that I would put, put the book aside, but there I thought, is this where's this going? I, and it was in fact Danica. And her relationship with her grandfather, who's dead, but is a ghost or a presence in her mind, is what kept me going in that early section. And then, then, then it does click, especially that meeting with the with the Council of Twelve and Leonara, and, and and you know being asked to be a spy. And then you know you get the, the what was the name of the artist it brought in at the same time and told, um, yeah, you've got to go off <laughs> to the Osmanli Empire and uh, paint the portrait of the emperor and. <laughs> It's basically a suicide mission wrapped up in the honour of having the opportunity to do that. So, yeah, that's when it clicked for me. But, but I don't know, did anyone else find the first bit? No? Yes? Maybe? I, I didn't particularly. I mean, I will note just for the record that Danica comes in in the second chapter. So, you know, I mean, I, I, okay, I'll say this. It takes me 40, 50 pages to get into any novel. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm seldom immediately immersed and so I, I don't have a strong feeling of struggling. I mean, I will say what does happen is that by the time you get about 150 pages in, Guy's a really compelling storyteller. Yes, he and, is. That, that is definite, yes. And he's really good at structuring these stories so they pull you on. It also has that classic, I mean, there's an element of that classic bestseller structure, if you like, where you're intermingling chapters from one character group and another and I will confess, I was a little bit impatient with, with say, one or two of the sections because I wasn't immediately grasped. So I was reading for more Danica, more Leonora, more this, whatever else, because I did, wasn't as interested. But then those other characters came to the fore in a really kind of powerful and interesting way. Especially Danica's brother. I think his, his story really develops in that last third. Uh, 
and 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 yeah, and I mean, and and the, and the bit with the is the Sinjin, the 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 pirates essentially, and yeah. and and that sort of side character who you know who's who's on the boat. Uh, I know I'm jumping here uh, in terms of plot. Who's on the who's who's leading the 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 uh, pirates? I'm going to call them pirates at the beginning with uh, Danica, and then goes and uh, becomes part of a uh, a, a, a group of uh, mercenaries to to attack the, the empire. Um, his little story um, about how they actually had 90, 90 men or a hundred men basically stopped these cannons, and that it's just that that which you thought, oh, why have you stopped the momentum? I actually thought to myself, why have you stopped the momentum of these other of these main characters for this to tell us this? I mean, it's nice and it's got a sort of Game of Thrones vibe to it, but but why? And, and it is just so compelling how they stop these cannons from being set up and these guy and the empire being stuck in the mud and the little. Terror, not terrorists, but but attacks they do, and it's just it's brilliant, and and you, and it all comes together. That's the astonishing bit in one book. This is not a trilogy. No. My own feeling, and you might have a different one, James, is that history's a a, a messy grab bag of things, and things bounce and echo off one another in unanticipated ways. So, with Children of Earth and Sky, when when Guy throws in the, the Senjin pirates. Who first we first encounter, I guess, when they're being blockaded by the Saracens because they keep attacking shipping, and that's where we we meet Danica, and then when Danica ends up, you know, amongst the group who stop, you know, Marin's ship, and then when her brother ends up as part of that siege, it all begins to bounce off one another. And I mean, my understanding, reading the biography of the book, if you like, the information about the book and the acknowledgements is the story of the pirates, which is essentially true, is what kickstarted the whole book. Um, so in a sense, we're coming up with, a, I think there's an element of coming up with a story that supports this conflict that says there's this seaside group of village of Jadites, I think they are, which means they're Christians, who yep. are warriors for God, and they're out there. You know, sort of to, to kill the heathens, which is, you know, what what they did, and they're told to go off on effectively a suicide mission, and having gone on their suicide mission and realised that, that they don't even need to be there in a way, they concoct another, basically completely different suicide mission in which they can change the course of history, uh, and it's quite kind of remarkable and really powerful and engaging, and then flows on. I mean, this is how, how you know, the obviously is dragged in. Um, uh, what's his name? Thomas's story, uh, uh, Danica's brother's story, Nefin. Yeah. He comes in, he's there, and ends up back in the village where she was. And, I mean, I've got to say, I mean, you say you, you sort of, you shed a tear once or twice. I shed more than once or twice because it's such a romantic book. It I mean, is, it's very much, yes. And I, I, I you know, I mean, it, it, it is, it is about, you know, sort of grand romantic things, true love. Characters finding what, what, what they want in the world, you know, I mean, uh, possibly the, the greatest statement, I don't have the quote here for it, but to me, the greatest description of love in the book comes when Pero Valani, having made the perilous journey to Ashariah, having painted the portrait of the Caliph and survived the politics and intrigue around painting the portrait of the Caliph, and then journeying back through the Equally, if not more hazardous world in between Ashariah and, uh, Dubrova, whatever it is now. Yeah. Returns to Lenora, who he had fallen in love with and who, and who he had said to a, a year or two earlier, you know, I'm a constant man. I shall return. And he comes back and they have this wonderful reunion. And then there's this great scene after, you know, like just afterwards, he basically says, I can't leave the life I have because this is who I am. And he yeah, says, right, you know, yeah. I can't, I couldn't, if I, you know, I wouldn't love you if I asked you to. It wouldn't be love if, if I needed you to change to be with me. And it's incredibly powerful and, and wonderfully done. Um, and really sensitive and well thought out. It, it's, it's, it's just terrific. It's, it's beautifully it's, sensitive. Sorry, sorry, James, you go ahead. Yeah, I've spoken. Oh, no, I was going to say, it's also, I mean, it's a wonderful moment. It also sets up the kind of final sections of the book where, you kind of move ahead in time and the characters start, you know, dying, basically. Yeah. And that sense of the way, you know, lives kind of exist within time, within history. 
it's very powerful in the book and very and very moving that sense that you know this is a life this is what happened in it and it came to an end you know and the world moves on and that's that's an incredibly powerful thing to capture and a powerful thing to read and, and there's an earned there's an earned sentimentality to that last third which is why when I did start to sob on the train when I was reading it, um, it happens a lot in my life anyway, um, that I never felt that I was being manipulated because we've gone through, uh, it's not mawkish or for the sake of mawkishness, it is very much earned. And uh, I, I, I admire that. Because I know a lot, some people do say, oh, well, it's all just uh, pulling strings here and, you know, um, but no, it's, it's, it's beautiful writing. It's, 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 mag it's just magnificent. Well, it's, it's extraordinary technically. I mean, what the, the thing that it kept, which his books often remind me of, but this one reminded me of very deeply, is in fact Tolstoy. And that amazing sense of the kind of roving eye that you have when you're reading Karenian and War and Peace, where it kind of moves between characters constantly. So you have this sense of this constantly moving kind of gaze, and it's kind of moving from mind to mind, perspective to perspective constantly. And it's done so, I mean, as a, you know, as a writer, I look at it and think as, as a piece of technical artistry, it's, it's remarkable. And, you know, I, I, I'm kind of in awe of it every time I read it. But, you know, in an odd kind of way, I, you were talking about the scene with the cannons before, and I found myself thinking there of, uh, when I was reading that, in fact, of War and Peace, and in fact of the Charterhouse of Palmer, of all things, the stand-up novel. Um, but, I mean, there's yep. clearly a series of antecedents to this book which are not within the fantasy canon, which one of the things that makes it really interesting. You know, it's kind of drawing on a, a kind of deeply literary tradition, and that, 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 that's very interesting. Well, I mean, I think you could ask the question of whether, on one level, Guy is genuinely a fantasy writer. I mean... The book is, is a fantasy. It's a secondary world fantasy. There is There are supernatural elements in it, just as there are supernatural elements in River of Stars and in any, one, any number of the other books. So, I mean, yes, there are fantasies, but it's, it's almost <coughs> as though there's a different purpose and a different toolkit being brought to, to bear. I mean, I read uh, an excerpt from a Reddit that Guy did um, talking about, you know, like if you were to go to Desert Island, what are the four books you would take with you? And none of them were, you know, fantasy novels. He wasn't taking Lord of the Rings and uh, Fritz Leiber and Michael Moorcock. It was going to be, you know, a great treasury of poetry. It was going to be the complete works of Theodore, of, of William Shakespeare, whatever else. There is an element of depth and purpose that comes with that kind of cultural connection that he brings to it. It's informed. I mean, he talks about, you know, the process for writing these books and why it takes him two or three years to uh, to write one, Why how there is a year or more of research and reading that goes into it. And you kind of go, well, why do you need to research so much for a story that's set in a made-up secondary world? And I think it's because it's finding this kind of braided um, tapestry of story that can fit together the history. Because, I mean, basically, this book is... It's the tale of a year. It's will the... Yes. Will the West be invaded by the um, you know, by a savage empire? Will will so much rain fall that the cannons can't get to the park, can't get to the fort, destroy the port, fort, allow the um, the Asherites to set up their base there, and then forge on into the following you know the following summer and take basically what is Western Europe? Yes, and everything is kind of played off that you know it's like because those stories are as important and unimportant i mean and i guess this is why it's like it's children of earth and sky we are children of uh of the spirit and of the world around us it is that intersection between history and spirituality and love and everything else around that makes it work um yeah I don't know if anything much more intelligent to say that, but it's... No, 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 I think, I think I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I did wonder, you know, uh, the fantasy element, or the, the supernatural element is so slight, but it is there, and it plays a major role. There's an element of prophecy in there, although it's very minor, but but, but essentially, Danica comes back from the dead. I mean, she does. It, <laughs> no well, two ways about it. She is well, killed I mean, and comes back from... More than that, on, sorry? on, two, well, on two occasions, two people who die become incorporeal spirits. Yes, that's true. Uh, the doctor's one of them. Yep. Yeah, become connected to someone who's alive 
and saves their life in some moment of dire emergency. You know, the doctor who is a lovely incidental character, um, ends up saving Lenora and persuading her not to, you know, stopping her from killing herself. And you feel that he's pushed by, um, by Nevin, the grandfather of Danica as well to, to do this and then disappears. And then, uh, the grandfather Nevin himself steps in when Thomas is about to kill Danica in the forest during a fight. Yes. And it's very powerful. I mean, and her, it, it, that also, it, it, it underscores her own sense of loss and what drives her character because I think sometimes the idea of a character who's basically driven by one desire, it seems. I mean, her primary desire seems, I'm going to go out and kill all of these evil people, as many as I possibly can, because they, they, they attacked my village, they killed my family, and they are the terrible infidel or whatever. And that's not a terribly three-dimensional kind of portrayal of a character to have, really. And having her grandfather there, having the dog Tico, her, her, her wolfhound, who's I love the dog, really rounds her out of something. Let me ask you this, though, because this occurs to me. What did you feel about her ultimate fate in the book? You know, she goes on, she becomes effectively a gorilla rider with, or well, a rider with it, and, and uh, archer with this gorilla troop led by this legendary commander. And then ends back up in a, a very, very tender reunion with Marin. Did you feel like that worked? Was there an element of that was like, did I feel that's what that, that what she would have done? I'll let James answer first. No, no, I, I, I think you should answer that question in. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, yeah, look, maybe not, but I don't know. I, I don't see why. I mean, clearly, Guy, okay, Guy Gabriel Kay had set up the fact that these two were close, and the fact that she ends up with him in the end. Um, seemed sensible, well, sensible, seemed logical. It didn't seem artificial. I mean, yes, she she, she had two opposing desires, well, he being the lesser one, the, the main one being to fight the good fight because of in essentially, essentially taking revenge for for what happened to her family. But, to, but you know, she wanted to she wanted to kill, um, is it Osmanali? I, I don't know if I, I can't pronounce it, but um, the, 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 she wanted to kill soldiers of the Empire. She wanted to kill them. And once she had fulfilled that it doesn't it doesn't entirely surprise me that she goes and finds the person who who made her feel comfortable when uh when you know outside of a war situation or a battle situation so yeah i mean it's fine for me it's you know i I don't know i don't know i I can't i haven't put a gender uh um glaze on it or a, a magnifying glass on it maybe it would upset some people but it seemed it seemed perfectly natural and organic for me I thought that they were, I mean, there was a great deal of chemistry between the couple early on. Um, and I mean, in a sense, she did go away and fight. And what she ends up doing is fighting with a group of irregulars and kind of discovering that what they're doing is cruising around and kind of massacring people. And, you know, I suspect that's not an experience that makes you feel that your cause is one. Do you know what I mean? I think there's a kind of, a sense in which she, I forget the name of the older, of the older... Skandar. Yes, Skandar. You know, he, he, by the end, is a much more ambivalent character than, you know, at the beginning he's kind of presented as this kind of hero. But fairly quickly you come to realise he's not actually that in any uncomplicated sense. I mean, basically he is kind of riding around massacring people. And, yeah. you know, that, that kind of sense of, I, I, I guess, the kind of brutality of that kind of close war is, is one of the things I think the book does both very well and quite subtly, you know. And, I mean, and she's, she's caught up in all of that. And I don't think it excuses Skandar's action in any way, you know, it doesn't justify, uh, excuse it. I mean... I think one of the nice things is that the that the empire again I can't pronounce it, but the, the, you know, it's it's easy to to think that this um, this 
Empire. They're, they're the villains of the piece, you know, with their war cannons and their and their and their very strict way of looking at the world. But even that's dealt with in a once once we get there, very in a very sensitive way. And again, it's I suppose what it comes down to is. Uh, is that there's no black and white heroes and villains in any of this. It's just, as you said, Jonathan, it's civilization and it's history. It's what it is. And, uh, and I think it's treated beautifully. I will say, I mean, I've said this book is romantic. And I think it's very romantic. It's also remarkably tender. You know, I mean, when he does paint the portrait, I mean, this is where, I mean, the point's where you, where you cry. I mean, or I, where I did, you know, when we get the reunion between Lenora and Pero lovely scene even this scene as much as there's a part of me going hang on danica has spent three years or something out riding with skandar she slept with him every night for three years she's surely a changed woman and yet she enters marin's room in exactly the way she had years earlier when they'd been together the first time and it echoed that scene beautifully and it just gave you the sense that i mean there was this character in marin who'd never really come close to recovering from this relationship or been interested in doing so and i thought it was just beautifully orchestrated let me ask you this though for 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 danica for lenora for uh the empress eudoxia um what do you think of the portrayal of women in children of earth and sky as a version of Renaissance Europe, James. Yes, James. Well, Tom, it's your. You go first. Oh yeah, I get to go first. Um, look, I, I I think the gender stuff in the novel is very interesting. I would have said that gender is also one of the things that he is interested in when you look at a book like River of Stars. Mm. Um, and it's one of the things, one of the things at which the book diverges quite significantly from its historical antecedents because, you know, this the kind of agency exercised by the women in this book is just not, you know, and there were presumably people who did those kinds of things, but it was not common. I mean, you didn't get... And, uh, I'm now going to be told I'm completely wrong and Danica is based on a real person, but, you know, I, I would not find a novel about Renaissance Europe with a female pirate like Danica plausible, you know, because it, it just wasn't within the kind of ambit of what women were able to do. But there is something very interesting about the way he he presents a lot of that gender stuff. So you have these kind of very equal relationships, which are then contrasted with relationships like the one between um, the dreadful father uh, who's banished um, Leonora to the, yeah. to the um, convent. You know, yes. Uh, where, where, or in fact, the, the scene where um, Marin's uh, Marin's attacked in in the in the hall in in um, I now can't think of the name. I'm completely failing on every score here. I can now kind of think of the name of the Venice analog either. But he's attacked Ceresa. in the hall, Ceresa in Ceresa's great hall, and because he's supposed to have um, gotten the daughter of one of the other noble houses pregnant, um, so that sense of the kind of ownership and the I guess the kind of extremely subjected status of women in that society is contrasted both with very equal and very, in a sense, kind of generously presented male-female relationships of a romantic sort, but also women who manage to find ways of exercising agency through all of that. And I think all of that's, that's very interesting. I mean, and it's quite a delicate balance to do those things at once, um, to, to do those things simultaneously because, you know, you are, in a sense, the historical antecedent of this is a ruthlessly patriarchal world, mm. you know, and and it manages somehow to step away from that without it feeling like, I don't know, a fantasy. Yeah, um, but, I, but, but it is, though. But these are, Danica, Leonora, these are not um, the norm. I mean, that's the, I think that's the point. These are special... But, they, but, they, but that's the point. I think they're all special characters in a, in, in, in a special situation. But um, but yeah, I think you're right. It, 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 this is still very much a, patri a world of patriarchy of where men rule. Um, you know, the councils, uh, uh, the emperor, whatever it is, or the empire, whatever it, whoever it is, and whatever it is, it's all ruled by men. But it's it's fantastic that he does um, allow this um, element of agency and empowerment to occur. 
and and that it, and it is, in, as you've said, James, it does so in such a way that it's feel again organic and natural to the flow of the story. It doesn't feel like he's um, trying to make some sort of polemic point or whatever about uh, uh, about agency or, or, or female empowerment. It all ju- it feels perfectly. I mean, Danica is. Cl- I mean, the, the point about Danica especially is that she exhibits her skills. She's not immediately just assumed to be a great warrior. She has to take out her arrows and shoot and show people, yep, look what I can do. And they, and then anyone, in any soldier worth their salt will look beyond the gender and say, you know what, you could kill people with great ease. You're an asset. And that is what the, you know, Skandar or whoever it is or the, or the pirates themselves say, yeah, all right, you're an asset. You just are. And that's why, and that's how he, he weaves it in so well, in, in my view. Yes, I mean, I, I think so. Though there is a little bit of, you know, sort of soft shoe that he has to do in the background at times. I mean, I, I looked at the moment when Lenora becomes the priestess on the island, when she becomes the elder sister, and the preceding elder sister is is killed because of her various political machinations and everything else. There is an element that this is the perilous moment in the story, and this bridge has to be jumped, if you like. I mean, it's, is it the immediately obvious thing that this young woman, who has no real logical claim to this situation she's in, should be given this pathway out? Because, I mean, she's, I mean, to give it context for the story, for, obviously we're rambling, we're assuming you've read the book, but you'll remember if you've read the book that, you know, there's this young woman, she's been sent by the Saracen Council of Twelve to Dubrovna, to be a spy, she's going with this young doctor, uh, they're set upon by pirates, uh, in the altercation on the ship, her, the doctor is killed, defending her, and she feels such despair, such feeling that she po- couldn't possibly have any place in the world at all now, and that she couldn't bear to go back to this cl- cl- closeted convent, that she will kill herself by leaping off the ship. And she's stopped by a supernatural agency, goes on to Dubrovna, and is basically on this island of the of the sisters and is going, well, what am I going to do with myself? I have no role in this. When the elder sister dies, and in effect, I guess, is it the Empress Eudoxia who tags her as being the yes, material she does. for the, uh, as the new older sister? And then that gives her this role. But it's like, it seems like, at least, and this is what reflects what you're saying, James, in the context of this world, it takes incredible odds for you to be given or to take, to have the chance to take a position of agency in your life. Even though, and this is perhaps what makes Lenora a strong character, and it's what makes Danica a strong character, they are all... And in fact, even people like the women that Danica encounters, the sisters, uh, the sister of the girl who's pregnant, who's going, who's, uh, who is brother is going to kill Marin in the council chamber in Dubrovna, even she is taking agency. There's an agency to be taken if you're the, the character that, if you have that in your character, I guess. You know, Guy is willing to, in his stories, give you that space, whether or not it's historically plausible. And I mean, I suspect if we were to talk to someone who knows the, the history of you know, Renaissance Europe intimately, they'll tell you there's far more of that than we suspect. Oh, I'm, I'm, I don't doubt there is. I, uh, But, you know, it's not a... They are characters who are kind of exceptional within their world, but also, you know, being presented as something we we should look at. Because one of the things I, I I thought was wonderful was in fact the relationship between Leonora and Eudoxia, the old empress, which was a wonderfully drawn relationship, and, and which is one that's argumentative, which is what I liked. It's not just yeah. uh, one way; it's two way. I think Leonora is terrific, but Eudoxia is a fantastic yes. creation, and that relationship I thought was really really interesting. There's that wonderful moment where. Leonora declines to do. I think does Eudoxia tell her she should kill her, have her father executed, and she declines to do yes. it. Yes, and she's like, you know, well, I, and Eudoxia is incredibly angry about it, and she says, "Well, look, I, I will listen to your advice. That doesn't mean I will always do it." Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go. I was just going to agree. That's all. I was, I was just going to say yeah. that, and that that becomes a a, a two way street of mutual respect. I mean, whether or not. Eudoxia's intention, and we never really know, was in a sense to put a lackey, someone she could influence, 
in this position that was so central to her own existence, because there's Eudoxia, you know, an empress of Sarantium, 25 years after the fall of the city, ineffectively exile in this religious convent thing on an island in Dubrovna, Dubrovna or Dubrova. And, you know, she's dependent on the elder sister for her world, and now she's helped install a new elder sister. So you can see that she would think maybe she would have some element of control, but it becomes one of real mutual respect, and, and even down to the point of, like, changing one another's minds. And when it comes to the, you know, not, not completely untouching either scene where, you know, Eudoxia fi is finally close to death and feels she's dying, um, that she chooses to be interred in the, um, you know, with the, the, the mosaics of the other two Sarantian uh, empresses, which earlier in the book she had scoffed, and it had yes, been, that's right. Yeah, uh, Lenora who had defended them, and you know she's taken Lenora's worldview, and she actually says, "You're know, like, no, you're right. I was unfair, and that's where I would like to be interred, a third empress kind of thing." And it's just a, a lovely relationship. S certainly covers the whole Bechdel test kind of thing with the, the element of the of the book quite easily. Um, let me ask you this, and I have my own answer, but what sucked about the book? Uh, I think, I, yeah, I struggled with the first few page, first 50 or so pages where, where Kay is setting up the political frameworks, which he does simply because he doesn't want to have to do that on page 350. I think every so often, just as the momentum of the novel is, is really picking up, he does push a pause button, which I found a bit irritating at times. Um, but that's, it's a minor quibble. But I, th I suppose it's not a complaint, it's more a question. Um, you, t you talk, Jonathan, about the book being romantic and the question of whether single people in history can have the sort of um, uh, effect that are, that's exhibited in this novel. I, there's a cynic, cynical side of me that would argue that, no, they, that, that's just not realistic, um, especially with... Uh, and, again, I, I know if the character names are all a blur to me, but the portrait, the, the artist, mm. his decision um, to be truthful... Which it's, it's it's purely a decision on honesty about the machinations that are going on in the court, uh, and not to be a tool of the the sun um, is essentially what causes the downfall of the entire empire or the, that entire you know the Osmanlis. And and you think, I thought to myself, oh, yeah, okay, it's it's it look Kay's g g writes it well, it, it it reads well, but uh, I just get this feeling that this this guy would have had his throat cut and that would be it. <laughs> You know, and, and, and he wouldn't have had the opportunities that he had to essentially tell the... the Is he an emperor? He isn't, because there's two emperors in the novel. But to, to tell the emperor the truth, he just wouldn't have been given that opportunity. I, and then it comes back to the fact that by doing that, it's one human being who's essentially caused the downfall uh, of an empire. And, you know, or what, and I know it's, it's all that, 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 you know, try a rock and a pool and the, the ripples push out, which, which is what, and all the characters seem to have that impact. And yeah, look, there's a cynical side of me that looks at today, looks at, because you've got to compare, and you look at a novel like this written in 2016, and you, you do have to see, is there anything in this that's relevant for, for, for us now? And the current politics of the day, and how hard it is for any, any real change to be made on anything. I mean, it happens, it's gradual, but I don't know, maybe it's because it was a, in quote, scare quotes, simpler time, one person could have an effect, whereas today in a more, scare quotes, complicated time, it's a much harder uh, mountain to climb. So, I don't know. But it, it's more, it's not a, it's more a question, a discussion, not a, a problem I had with the book. It's more a, you know, this idea, this, this idea around the individual having that much impact on the, on the course of history. James? Um, I don't know that I think anything sucked about it. I liked it very much. I think that, I don't know that I would say I didn't like the first chapter or so, um, but I do think that there is there are certainly moments in the book where you're in a much more familiar, lands, familiar landscape. So that long scene with the ambassador in, um, in the capital of the Roman Empire um, the bits where Danica is first kind of leaping onto the ship and killing people. And they feel like things I've read in fantasy novels before. Um, and it's when it gets away from those moments that the book really takes flight. And it's interesting. One of the things I think is really 
remarkable about River of Stars, the book before this, is that it's a book that doesn't feel like any other books. And there's something there's something very fresh about it, you know, and very very different about it. And it's not that this one doesn't have that. It's that I guess I guess you can certainly I guess there's that level of familiarity about the kind of scheming ambassador in the palace and and all that. You you know you kind of feel you've read that stuff before. But what he's doing is setting up the larger story. So I I, I wouldn't say that there's anything I thought was I mean sucked is a very strong word. Um, <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not sure I'd even say there are things I didn't like about it. But you know if I had a complaint, it would be that there are certainly moments in the setup particularly where you feel like oh, you, it, it feels like a more conventional kind of fantasy novel but once it gets going all of that falls away you know and and you're suddenly there with these characters and, and like as i said before as a piece of kind of technical artistry you know i'm just in awe of the way that it keeps moving in that incredibly you know kind of the lightness of the touch as it kind of moves just seamlessly from character to character to character, just constantly. It's incredibly difficult to pull off that kind of thing, and he just does it astonishing well, I think. I mean, and I found it very, I found it extremely moving, and, you know, I, 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 I really loved the, I, I guess, the kind of, romanticism's not quite the right word, but there's a kind of... Uh, there's something about the relationships which I really liked because the relationships are all between equals and the men particularly treat the women like equals all the way through. And that, that is, I, I found that really wonderful and really refreshing to read. Or where they don't, there's some comeuppance for them. I think that, that's, yeah. I mean, because obviously the, 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 as you were saying it, I'm thinking, well, we couldn't for a second say that, um, Lenora's father treated her as anything other than a shackle and property, really. Oh, no, no, I, I meant the romantic yeah, relationship. Yeah, Sorry. absolutely. Uh, I mean, I don't think anything sucked in the book at all, either. I mean, I probably am with Ian. A, a, a little shadow it took me, probably be fair, actually, to say this to, about the book. It wasn't that it was hard to get into. It took me just a little bit of time to find my fate in it and to get the rhythm of it. And then, as the book had built, once I'd yeah. Once you built that idea that yes, I understand we have these four stories effectively moving forward, they're going to intertwine back and forth and whatever else. Then there was this feeling of, of I mean, I was waiting for a, a different kind of structure to appear that doesn't because it's 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 not a neat, tidy story arc. It's wave after wave after wave of story, and even when you think it's done, it's not done. You know, I mean, there is a little element of, I mean, I. I felt it was at times a little tidy at the end, in the sense that it's like everybody got the end, no matter how far. We, I mean, like we went different distances into the future for um, for Pero, the other artist. We, we we see most of his future laid out for uh, Danica and Mara. We get just far enough to imply the future that lies in, li lies there for them, but it's just wave after wave, and I kept waiting for this sort of thing. And it's like you needed sort of you needed the season to fail. You know, so you need these things to happen. You needed almost in the background, but still a major part of the story, you needed you know, the roads are going to be too wet for the for the, the cannon to get through. The uh Caliph is going to have his son executed and choose a different heir. Um and the uh pirates of Saint John need to have destroyed the the Caliph's artillery. And then the story can flow on. And like, you can, and I don't know about you, but I did. I did an elemental feel like, oh, this is the end. And you're like, no, we're going, there's still another 140 pages. Flows on. And I, I never resented it. It's beautiful. I mean, you're right. It's, the, the touch, not only is it deft and delicate, but it becomes more so as the book goes on. It's lovely. I, I love the book a great deal. It's also not the first book in a series. Okay. No. So that's, you know, and it is <laughs> although you could argue it's the, well, that's right. It is theoretically the third book, isn't it? You know, you know, you know. Or fifth or sixth, actually, I think. Yeah. Oh, what he's done five in that. In well, well, well I mean, as I say, I mean, the light, I mean, these follow on the two Sarantine books, Sailing to Sarantium and Lord of Emperors, which are, as I said, a thousand years earlier. But they are also in the same setup as Song for Arban and Lions of Al Rasan and The Last Light of the Sun. So they're all 
episodes, but really, in a sense, irrelevant to one another, other than as faint echoes. Uh, yeah, okay. You don't need to read anything before this. You don't need to read anything after this. Just this. And, you know, yeah, I'm going to go out there and say that, you know, it's my own humble opinion that if it's not on the World Fantasy Award ballot in 2017, the judges will have made another terrible mistake. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, it's it's definitely uh, got awards written all over it. Um, yeah, it's 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 too good a novel to to be disregarded. Uh, and look, I didn't read the Under the Heaven and the and, oh, the, and the other one. Uh, yeah, but well, you know, I mean, and we move on, and I don't know if I'll ever go back. Uh, and I do regret that I haven't read more Guy Gabriel K because I mean, I love Tagana. Um, but this book, um, its literary qualities, its the, as um, James says, the artistry of the way he pulls things together. Um, maybe there's a bit of artifice here and there, but overall, it's it's mm. there's, it's 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 gorgeous. And yes, should be um, should be read by many, and should be on award ballots next year. Well, I feel like that kind of which is my which is my final word on the book. So I feel, uh, I feel yeah, like that kind of brings us to a bit of a close. I mean. We've said we're, we're planning on discussing Madeline Ashby's company town on the next episode. Are we still all happy about that? Yes. I'm still happy with that. Okay. So that's our plan. We'll, we will be back now. Uh, as I was saying before we started recording the episode, um, we may or may not be back at the end of June. We'll have to work that out because I'm about to go to, in fact, to modern Europe, to, to Italy. And so we may be struggling to find a recording time, but we will do our best and we'll see how we are next time. Okay. Well, once again, guys, it's been emotional. It's been great. Until then, thank you very much, James. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you very much, Ian. Thank you very much. And, you know, look, if you're insane enough to listen to this podcast without having re read the book, it's still going to be worth it. Go read the book. It's good. Oh, we, 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 there's a lot going on. We, we've kind of covered so much. Yeah, sorry, I, I, I would recommend it. It's one of the best things I've read in a long time. It's a terrific book. I really loved it. Yeah, me too. Okay. Until then, talk to you next month. Bye.